Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Hello to my unapologetic listeners. I am really excited for you to hear today's episode with my friend, Frances Fisher. She has a voice, and she's not afraid to use it. We talked about the many causes she's passionate about, the importance of empathy, and the lasting power of art. I loved sitting down with her, and I hope you will too. Here's why Frances Fisher is sorry, not sorry. You know, you are one of the, and the reason I have this connection to you because you're one of the people that I feel like is not afraid to use their voice and have been able to do it in a way where you can still have a career, where people still hire you. And I know that's not easy. And I know that there's like always a fear factor of how vocal can I be? Who am I insulting in this moment in time? But I never remember you not being vocal in your career. And I, I wonder what, why you think that you're able to get away with what you're, you get away with. I, because I, you're always there. I don't know if I do get away with it. I mean, I people seem to think I work all the time. I think it's because of reruns. <laughs> Because, I mean, I need a job too. Right. You know, and I just kind of wonder sometimes what's going on. I mean, I got a call. Well, you know, I was a surrogate for Bernie in 2016. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from a friend who said, uh, Francis, I just want to tell you, as a friend, uh, people in this industry have different views than you do. Is this a threat? And that's from our side. Yeah. 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 Meaning meaning it's not someone, meaning it's not a Republican. Yeah. No, no, no. It was, you know, a helpful friend who said some, she had gotten that call a few years before when she was backing the wrong person. Quote, unquote, the wrong person. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was grateful for it. And I thought, I wonder if that has had anything to do with the fact that I'm not working as much as I think I should be. Hmm. Interesting. We've never had this conversation before. I think it does, probably. I think there is an element of, and and we have to decide as sort of actors and, and artists and activists and advocates how far we would allow that to be normal and not speak to that Mm. because that's a form of discrimination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that goes both ways as well. I mean, shame on anyone who doesn't hire an actor that's a Trump supporter. Like I feel the same way about, you know, anyone that wouldn't give James Woods a job. Well, he's got his own problems. Yeah. But let's just say his only problem was that he was a Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. 
if someone's not going to give that person a job because of who they support politically, I don't think that's fair. Yeah, I don't think that's right either. Um, you know, uh, when I was a young actress, I worked with Ilya Kazan on his first and only play, and therefore his last play that he did called The Chain. And we would do exercises in rehearsal. And he said, as an actor, you have to let go of all of your political beliefs, your religious beliefs, all of your beliefs in order to play characters. Otherwise, you're going to limit yourself. Mm -hmm. He would have us stand up and speak for uh, abortion and then speak against Mm -hmm. abortion, you know, as exercises to create these characters. And I think it's the same as actors. I mean, actors shouldn't be discriminated against because of their political views. It's just we're human beings and we're citizens. We have a right to say what we want. These people were praying for their ancestors, standing on their own ground. And to see them hit with water cannons and chemical weapons, rubber bullets. I'm Francis Fisher. I just want to let you know that I'm representing the actresses, actors, crew people, and production companies who are staying here to work in Georgia. It's interesting. I, I when I took on the the Cora Lee from Insatiable, which is the show that I'm shooting right now, she's kind of this bigger than life Southern. She's got big hair and she's very funny. But during the the press tour, I actually said out loud, I said, they said, How did you prepare for this for this role? And I said, Well, I love this character a lot, and she voted for Trump. And people were like, what? I said, yeah, I am portraying. And of course, the writer was like, no, she didn't. No, she didn't. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, in my mind, in my yeah. backstory, right. this, she is one of the women mm-hmm. that brought him to the, and I love her. Mm-hmm. And I understand why she did it. Mm-hmm. And I think actors have a sort of unique ability to be and we have to mm-hmm. to be able to have this kind of empathy for people that are maybe not like us or maybe don't believe well, or maybe sometimes are unlikable isn't that why we act I yeah. mean, for me that's one of the greatest gifts is because i can step into the shoes and the headspace of someone that is completely different from me just to understand it i think it creates um, a, a better world a, a more empathetic I know I'm more empathetic because I can understand. I just did a play called Native Gardens at the Pasadena Playhouse. And Bruce Davison and I played an old D.C. Republican Mm -hmm. couple, you know. And they're completely lovable because we all want the same thing. We want want, uh, clean clean air, I hope. We want, you know, food on the table. We want to love our families. We want our, our health. Stability. We want stability. Support. Uh, yeah. I mean, all families are the same. Did you see that wonderful short that just won uh, an Oscar called Skin? Mm-mm. I haven't seen it. Uh, my friend Jamie Ray Newman, who's an actress, but she produced it with her husband, uh, directing it, Guy Nativ. But It starts out, it's a 20-minute short, and it gives you the comprehensive look at guns and family and Mm. race relations in 20 minutes. Guys like this only have three options. Die young, life in prison, or 
They start talking. Not on our American soil! Let them leave! It's our last gig. Why? I don't want my kids to be around this. I won't tell you the, oh, the story because you have yeah. to watch it. But the thing that got me is how it starts. It's like family is everything to anyone on this planet, no matter what your political beliefs are. Right. You know, and that's a good starting place. What, well, and it, it puts everyone on the same battleground, right? If we're yeah. all fighting for that, mm-hmm. it's just about how we think is the best way to get there. I always say to people, it's not, I was, it's not because I was raised in this very liberal household that I am a Democrat. I'm a Democrat because I believe in a certain way of right, of life that it seems like the Democratic Party is fighting for. Mm -hmm. Now things shift. We've seen it before with, with political parties and their ideology shifting. Who's to say that in 30 years from now, 35 years from now, the Republicans aren't fighting for the things we're fighting for now. Yeah. It can happen. Right. And I would be a Republican then. It seems that it's just so polarized. Everybody's so locked in. Well, what do you think are those common threads? And how do you think we get, we bridge the divide? Like, like I feel conservative fi- fiscally on certain things, and that's what a quote-unquote Republican is. Mm-hmm. But not always, because everything shifted so extreme right. in, in both parties, right? Um, but I think that we all need to take care of each other, you know, and that's a more democratic point of view. Right. Right? That we help the lesser, we give them a hand up, because... All all ships rise. Is that mm-hmm. what it is? All boats rise. What is that? I don't know. <laughs> but it sounds if, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's go with that. Well, <laughs> if if you help some, you know, we're all gonna we're all gonna get to the promised land. Right. We can't leave people behind. It doesn't work that way. But we've done it. This country has done it. Oh We've yeah. left so many people behind. Yeah. Even even the presidents and the administrations with the best intentions. Mm-hmm. Have left people behind. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What do you well, think it is? You about- know, it's in, it's interesting because I've been listening to Marianne Williamson in her uh, her her talks, and she breaks it down like this. She gives us a history lesson, which mm-hmm. I always like to 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 hear. That the founding principles are some of the most glorious ideas that have ever been put forth. In no other country has been founded with these principles. Yet on the other hand, the same founding fathers owned slaves. Right. So that this... And didn't include women. And didn't include women. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I always thought, even as a kid, it's like all men were created equal. Well, what about women? Are right. we not created equal? Uh, maybe that's a hint that we're better than, but I don't even want that. I just want equality. Yeah, exactly. You know? decision to have a child should not be a matter to be decided by the male-dominated legislature. You think it's gotten worse? Yes. Why has it gotten worse? The racism in this country? Yes. Look at all the fights, the riots, people getting killed. And here's what matters to me, that my daughter inherits a world where a healthy environment is a basic right for all of us. 
this note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. So, so baked into the cake is this dichotomy of the American ideals and also the dark history of what needs to still be rectified. Well, I think part of the problem is, is we have not adequately dealt with the dark history. We have not, and, and we see institutionalized misogyny, uh, sexual abuse, uh, racism, I mean, institutionalized. I mean, mm -hmm. we're still dealing with slavery in our prisons. Yes. We're dealing with sexual abuse in, in detention centers. These are, mm -hmm. these are mm -hmm. institutions, our institutions. And we have not adequately dissected our history, I think, in a way where we will not repeat it, mm -hmm. obviously, because yeah. we continue to repeat it in different forms. Yeah. And I don't know how... I think maybe that ship has sailed already where we're able to really learn from, from that, the past. But there's also an element, what do you think of, and it's an idea that I, I think about, but I don't know that I've formulated the real concept yet in my head. When you think about education, right, and how we're teaching about oppression and how to come out of that darkness. We often focus so intently on our history, which I think is obviously a very important part of it. But what we don't do is also focus on the future and what we expect. We expect to treat everyone as equal, even though you know, so-and-so comes from this part of town and so-and-so. We don't confront what's right in front of us. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're leaving our youth to connect the dots themselves. Well, that's why I think history is important to be able to teach it because then you see, well, that's the pattern. If people don't, you know, the But do, are they associating that? I don't know that they necessarily... Because I, my, both of my kids are learning about Martin Luther King Jr. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. And I don't know that they can associate that with the the children of color that are in their classrooms now and what is expected of them as being people of great privilege, how they are expected to carry and help those with less privilege if we're constantly teaching kids from only the history, how do we teach them the expectations yeah. and how that connects to the present? Well, isn't that, that that's a really good idea that, that teachers who are teaching the past say, and then this is how this fast is forward right. to where we are now. 
and where we hope to be and where we hope to be in 10 years when you know hopefully things get better and better but i think it's so important to understand the underlying causes of all this stuff because we can't just treat the symptoms right can't be an allopathic way of healing something you have to get to the root of it you know yes 100 percent. i mean this whole uh, thing about reparations that came up Mm -hmm. in the last couple of weeks i found it really interesting because like all of a sudden where did that come from i mean the it's usually healthcare and it's, yeah. you know, it's the border issues. Like all of a sudden, and that was uh, Congressman, or no, that was Mayor Castro that brought that up. Who's running? Mm-hmm. I have long believed uh, that this country should resolve uh, its original sin of slavery, and that one of the ways we should consider doing that is through reparations for people who are the descendants of slaves. It is interesting to me that under our Constitution and otherwise, that we compensate people if we take their property. Shouldn't we compensate people if they were property sanctioned by the state? So I believe that 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 is a conversation that's worth having. And I see that as right and wrong. I don't see that as political or non-political. So uh, if I'm president, What I said was that I would establish uh, a task force to look at how that might be done. And then and then a number of the other candidates were asked and they didn't really know. And I was like, go to Marianne Williamson's site. She Mm -hmm. has a whole thing Mm -hmm. in her platform about racial reconciliation and healing. This is part of the dark underbelly of American society. The racism, the bigotry, and the entire conversation that we're having here tonight, if you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. And the underlying cause has to do with deep, deep, deep realms of racial injustice, both in our criminal justice system and in our economic system. And the Democratic Party should be on the side of reparations for slavery for this very reason. Her career has been about helping people. Mm. She's an authority on a book called A Course in Miracles. Uh, Her great quote that was sometimes attributed to Nelson Mandela, our greatest fear is not our uh, darkness, but our light. Light, yeah. So I had heard about her when I was living in New York uh, decades ago. So I got the Course in Miracles book and it was so thick. I mm-hmm. mean, not only thick, physically thick, mm-hmm. but dense, dense. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't even get through a paragraph. Uh, there's no way. So I never went to her to hear her explain it. I wish I had, my life would have been completely mm-hmm. different, mm-hmm. but we connected in 2002 because a friend of mine, Jimmy Demers, asked me if I wanted to go to, to uh, Washington, D.C. and lobby for a Department of Peace in Washington, D.C. thought, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, who wouldn't want to <laughs> lobby right? for that? Yes. How about that? Having a, you know, a, the head, head of the Department of Peace sitting there with everybody else at the, in Amazing. the cabinet room. Marianne Williamson was leading it with Dennis Kucinich, who was mm-hmm. a congressperson at the time. So I got to meet her in the halls. Um, 
And then I started going to her lectures. And the way she broke down A Course in Miracles uh, was accessible to me. And it changed my life. Mm. It's basically about changing your point of view. If you can change your point of view about something, you can heal yourself in a way that you never... And is it a specific change your point of view to this? Like if you're... Does she give you tools? Oh, yeah. There are a lot of tools. Um, I love tools. It's all... (laughs) I really do. I live off the tools. Forgiveness. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. going back to that moment when you made the mistake and forgiving yourself for it. Forgiving yourself is often a very difficult thing. Yeah. I always used to think that forgiving others was hard. It was... Turned yeah. out that it's forgiving myself because once I can forgive myself and take responsibility for what I did or didn't do, yes, then everybody then you don't else even is need them to to apologize so, or feel forgiveness well, for them. Yeah, yeah. You inspire this younger generation f- to use their voice. I really believe that. How many actresses do you know? Let's name them: the Arquettes. Oh my God! I have to tell you about them. I would please. To, can I talk to yes. about Rosanna and yes, Patricia of course, last night? Please. Uh, the twenty nineteen Visionary Women Awards were last night, and uh, Patricia and and Rosanna Arquette were honored, and it was a f- fantastic evening, because as as you know, um, Patricia won her. Was it her SAG award? Instead of like thanking a whole bunch of people, she said, we have yes, to get this. Yes, which I love. <laughs> I love her so much because literally every time she has a microphone, she makes it a moment. Oh, I know. A moment not people about can. her. Yeah. She literally, like I'm welling up just thinking about, she has worked her entire life to get on that stage. Yeah. And instead of accepting the award for herself, she turns that moment into a platform for everybody else. Thank you to the Academy, to my beautiful, powerful nominees, to every woman who gave birth, to every taxpayer and citizen of this nation. We have fought for everybody else's equal rights. It's our time to have wage equality once and for all and equal rights for women in the United States of America. Oh, thank you, Robert Mueller and everyone working to make sure that we have sovereignty for the United States of America. Now, see, so this is something where I, when I see that she is doing amazing work and getting honored for it and speaking out, especially about the the equal rights amendment and equal pay. It's like, yeah, okay, she's not being punished. So maybe... Maybe that's not true. I don't true. think you're being punished. But then on the other hand, let's look at Rosanna. Well, How yes. she was a pretty much example. blacklisted. Her own sister, because of her outspoken views about what's now become the Me Too movement. Well, and I think that the difference is, is that Rosanna was brave enough to talk about one horrible man that had a lot of power. Mm -hmm. And I think that that man that had a lot of power abused that power yet again by getting her blacklisted. Yeah. And 
I think the hardest thing for me to think about through all of these, you know, Rosanna and and Mira Sorvino and all of these 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 first women that came forward that were blacklisted, all the amazing work that they would have done for those oh that many years, it's like a chunk of their lives and their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. were erased from history. By the way, just erased. Yeah. Your talent means nothing anymore. Yeah. Your talent means absolutely nothing. You're not going to be able to work. Nobody's going to know your name on the other side of this mm-hmm. because it's younger generations that were not yeah. raised around those people. Imagine the work that Rosanna would have done in that time. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and Mir- Mira too. Mira too. And... You know, what's so wonderful about them is that they are continuing on. And I just love what Sarah Paulson did the other day by, you know, really investigating what happened to Rosanna. She offered her a part on her new... Yes, on her new series. uh, Series, Ratchet. Yeah. Ratchet. And so I think, you know, so they say what is for you will not go past you. And when you think about how these women were plucked out of their prime and now are being are having to re-enter as older women in an industry that is often not kind to older women. That devastation. How fucked up is that when you think about, I mean, it's getting somewhat better as far as giving women past 40 a job, but it's, we're not, this industry is not kind to women. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a whole thing, you know. I look I think when they started doing the HD and the the, the cameras changed and mm-hmm. even 20-year-olds looked bad because you could see their chicken pox mm-hmm. marks on their yeah. skin. It's not helpful to women over 40, 50 or 60. No. The only hope I have is that there are more women in Entering the industry, who are writing, directing, in positions of in power, positions of power, who are putting together material, understanding the wisdom of the elders. Right. Obviously, the patriarchy. But also telling different got, stories. Telling different, yeah, from telling different, different perspectives. Stories, yeah. yeah, and letting the elder women stand forth. I know that Ellen Barkin is going through a whole thing on her TV show. She's the lead of that show. Right. And what do they advertise? They advertise all the kids. Hmm. And Ellen is amazing, and it's all about her brood. But yeah, well, I mean that's a whole other issue because we we don't we market cheaply now, and what is that? That's social media, and what is that demographic? It's the yeah. younger generation. So they are taking. It's it's we're in such a transitional period. I think as far as media go, as far as anything goes, artistry, anything within the entertainment industry, we're really in a transition period. But also when you think about how cheap it is basically to sell a show on social media and the free advertising they get from the young people on the show that have millions of followers. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's hard to navigate. It's hard to put that in its right place. What are the, can you think of other actors that speak out? There's Mark Ruffalo. Oh, Mark is fabulous. Yes. Uh, the Arquettes. Well, Amber I mean, Tamblin, Deborah Messing. Yeah, Deborah, yeah. I mean, God, let me go through my Twitter feed right now. I mean, there are 
there are so many. I just don't want to just only go for the people who are like super famous, you right. know, because there are other people who are doing the same thing, speaking out, may not have a lot of followers, but they're always on the right side of everything. Yeah. But know? I think my point is more that there is, I wish there oh, were people. more people in our industry speaking out. I feel like there's such, there's a fear factor. And I think part of that fear factor comes from the right selling this narrative that we don't know what it's like. We live in a bubble. Oh, God. And sort of villainizing people in the entertainment industry and trying to prevent us to, from speaking. And I think part of that is because no one in the entertainment industry supports the Republican Party. So, of course, they have to vil villainize us because we, most, in most cases, are supporting the Democrats. So I think that this is one case where the, the Republican – well, there are many cases that the Republican narrative has really worked. But in our industry – I think a lot of why people fear coming out is because the Republicans have put this on us, that mm. we don't know what we're talking about, that if we go into Alabama and speak our mind for for Doug Jones, that half of the state is going to be like, well, you don't know what you're talking about, and that we're actually going to hurt these candidates more than we help. I think probably the best thing, and given the lean of most Hollywood celebrities and most celebrities in general, aside from maybe the president himself and Kanye West, um, you know, I think the best thing they could probably do for Democrats is kind of keep their mouths shut through Election Day. People are just fed up with celebrities doing anything other than what they were paid to do, like sing, act, dance, whatever it might be. Right. Well, what is your message to those Hollywood elites after you saw the Oscars last night? My message to them is simply that we genuinely don't care what they think. We appreciate them for their talents, but the idea that because they can act, they can sing, they are now well positioned to tell us how to live is, is really far from the mark. But I have to tell you, in all of my traveling throughout the country, I have never experienced that in my life. I've never experienced anything, and I've been all over this country, where people have not been thankful, even if they're views are opposite of mine, that I actually care about what's going that you on. Care. Yeah, I, I've got two thoughts about that. First of all, we're all citizens. We have a right to speak out. Even a janitor has the right to speak out or a CEO. And everyone has get, a platform. Everyone has a platform. That's right. Now there's a great equalizer. But also there are, there are more Republicans in our industry than you think. Mm -hmm. It surprised me when I found out. But the bigger issue is, like, I'm on the board of directors at the Screen Actors Guild. Mm -hmm. Now we're SAG-AFTRA. Sat many times in negotiations. And I would look at these motherfuckers mm -hmm. who are trying to down, downgrade us and demean us and take things away from us. Like, first class, air travel. I mean, come on. For years, they finally got it out of our... Hands because our board, anyway. What do these guys do when they go home? They go home and watch TV. Yeah. What are they watching? Us. Yeah. They go to the movies. It's us. Yeah. So I think about all these people who are putting down actors for speaking out. It's so cheap because go home and see how many television sets they've got 
in every room of their house. By the way, in all of my lobbying in D.C. with Republicans, they want the selfie just as bad as oh, the yeah. Democrats. Of course, yeah. Yes. So this whole idea of the, the, the us and the them and that we live in a bubble, it's so not true. How many times have I been attacked where they go, oh, yeah, the wall, you're upset about the wall? Well, you're behind a wall. And I want so badly to say, no, I'm in a two-bedroom apartment. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Well, that's but I, I don't want to get defensive about it, but that projection that actors are living in a bubble and that we're so rich that we're isolated on the top of a mountain. Or that we always had wealth. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. I, who, if not us, can speak out about... I mean, I was born in Bensonhurst. And then I lived <laughs> in Staten Island. My parents had no money. No money. They raised... Two kids on no money. Who better to speak out about the American dream than someone that's all like experienced it? it. Yes. That that has made it. And most actors and people in this industry that I know used art as an escape to a really fucking hard life. We didn't all grow up entitled. Oh my God, no. How many actors grew up entitled. Most of us had to struggle, and that's why we looked at art. That's that's an absolutely correct analysis of what makes someone go into this business, because if you are entitled, you're not going to be driven to create art. I'm sorry, maybe I'm being, you know... No, I agree uh, with that. ...biased about it, but I think it is people who are struggling who become artists. And I'm not just saying in front of the camera or on the stage, of, you know, cinematographers and... Mm-hmm. You know, people who edit and, you know, people like- uh, sew costumes. Every We're doing it to express ourselves. And that's, you know, the, the, the other thing that I wanted to mention about Rosanna. You know, the uh, Arquette Family Foundation created the Alexis Project because of their sister who uh, died of AIDS. And um, one of the things about the Alexis Project, uh, not only which is run by Astrid Hagar, who, is, who presented Rosanna with her award last night. She works with the most disenfranchised people in this town, LGBTQ, who have nowhere to turn. So there are medical programs, there are mental health programs, and they're also saying how important it was for Alexis to let people know that art is a way that you can heal. So I wanted to just yes. bring that into what you were yes. saying, that all of us who have been able to survive and get a pension at the end of the day have worked really hard. And most of us have come from nothing. It, it's, yes. Same here. And, and, yeah. when, and when people, if you're listening at home and, and you troll us, <laughs> talking to you, um, just remember that we worked really hard to get to the place that we are at and we continue to work and what we fight for we're not fighting for each other we're fighting for you we are fight we we're, we're not discriminating against who we're fighting for we're fighting for everyone we're fighting for trump supporters we're fighting for you know christians we're fighting for everyone and it's something that i don't see from the other side i don't ever feel like they are fighting for everyone i think they are 
fighting for a very small group of, of white men. So I wanted to tell you about this awesome company called Lola. It's founded by women for women because they believe that we shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to feminine care products. Lola offers a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, liners, and all natural cleansing wipes. Okay, get this. Did you know that the FDA doesn't require brands to disclose a comprehensive list of ingredients in their feminine care products? So most of them don't. And we should know what we're putting in our bodies. Lola offers complete transparency about the ingredients they use. While other brands use a mix of synthetic ingredients, including rayon and polyester that may be treated with harsh chemical cleansing agents, Lola products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics, or dyes. And for every purchase, they donate feminine care products to homeless shelters across the U.S., which you know I love. Also, I'm a fan of the convenience of Lola. They deliver right to your door in a well-designed, discreet box. So, they are giving my listeners a special deal. You can get 40% off your first month's subscription of Lola. Just go to my lola.com and enter Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A, when you subscribe. Again, that's mylola.com, and enter Alyssa. I want to talk to you about going back to art, because it's something that I don't feel like we cultivate enough, this, this beautiful element that, in bridging the divide, I don't know anything else that could bridge the divide like storytelling, mm-hmm. like art, like music. And if you think about a community, a small community, and you think about how we're all kind of segregated in our own communities, right? Like we pray in our own churches or our own mosques. We, you know, Italians will go eat in Little Italy. There's Chinatown. There is a sense of specific communities for specific groups of people. Mm-hmm. What's the one place that everyone can convene together that drops all of that? You talking about school? I'm talking about theater. Oh, theater. I'm I talking see. about movie theaters. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about because even schools are somewhat, you know, schools. You're right. There's depending there's, on your. Communities of color, they financial go to one school, status, their yeah. financial status, or even Catholic schools versus, you know, the theater, the arts, museums, concerts, movie theaters. Mm-hmm. Everyone mm-hmm. comes together, sporting events. Yeah. Drops the bullshit. Yeah. Drops whatever they identify with, whether yeah. that be political or religious or ethnicity. Whatever it is, and comes together under one roof. Are we taking that responsibility seriously enough? Are we telling the stories that will open hearts and minds enough? Are we exploring immigration enough? And all of these things that we seem to be so divided on. Are we creating enough art to bridge that divide? Imagine for a moment 
a world without art and culture, without music, without cinema, without dance, opera, literature, poetry, that world would be a very, very dull place. Without art, the banality of reality would be intolerable. Or, to paraphrase Nietzsche, we have art in order not to perish from the truth. What it is we're communicating, how are we communicating, how do we actually realize our human potential that is cognitive and emotional, and that's where the arts and culture come in. What is freedom for? Art represents a form of individual expression that is a sort of bulwark for any democratic society. I think there are going to be more and more movies coming out dealing with what has just become our latest humanitarian crisis, which is what's happening at the border. Let's not forget that there are children starving in this country, and they always have been. Yes. I mean, there's a humanitarian crisis just happening in our country. Yes. You know, regardless of what's happening at the border, which is horrifying. Horrifying. And we are able to fix that problem quite easily. We're, and you know what and I'm really happy about this Congress is that things are starting to move. Yes. I worry that move. they're moving too quickly, that people can't absorb the issue Right? Like HR1 has so many elements yeah. to it that are so yeah. vital, but are we losing all of those individual I, issues because it's all lumped together? It's bundled. <laughs> yeah. You know, under a, an, under a beautiful um, umbrella of the For the People Act. Yeah. Like, what does that really mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I haven't had a chance to actually go in and read it, but I'm assuming, maybe that's not the right thing, that it's got everything in there because... You know, this, these last two years, we've been so bombarded with all of that mm -hmm. negativity that's just shocking to me. I mean, the most important thing about HR1 in particular is getting dark money out of politics. Yeah. But there's a lot of other elements to it, like making Election Day a holiday, a, holiday, a national yeah. holiday. So yeah. there's a lot of things that are under that, you yeah. know, that, that are, I think, important that I, I just, I worry that everything's happening. I love it, mind yeah. you. I there's so much to look forward to when you wake up in the morning now because there are hearings and there are votes mm -hmm. about things that we really care about. Right. But then we cannot lose sight of the fact that if we don't win back the Senate, McConnell's not going to put a lot of these up for a vote. I know. So even though it feels like great wins, if we, yeah. they will not become law unless we can get McConnell to put them up for a vote. Yeah, we're halfway there. And how do we do that? But back to art. Because I think this is an important conversation, and I think you have so much to say. Well, you know, w when we first started talking about this subject, I was thinking, how many public schools have, have taken art out of the curriculum? And physical activity, too. And it's been known that the more physical activity a child has, the more their brain will click on all cylinders, and they'll be able to absorb the, the, the learning that they need, in, you know, science and math and all that. Um, you need physical activity and you need an outlet, which is art, in which to express that which cannot be expressed verbally or... or Your own pain. Uh, yeah, just, you know, angst. And, yeah. Which, expression. even if you're in the most... Even if you grow up in, in the most ideal situation, I think being a teenager brings a certain amount of angst anyway. 
And how are we, how are we expecting our young people to express that if we're taking sports out of school, if we're taking arts out of school? Art is the only field that lets a child sort of spread their wings and let them know that it's okay to try things and make accidents because guess what? Some of the best things, discoveries are, and inventions are made when you experiment, when you push the limits, and when you do things that are not simple, straightforward, and expected. Well, often people think of the arts as just kids making nice paintings and drawings to put on the refrigerator or hang on the wall. But it really is a much more serious enterprise than that because children bring all their experiences of living in the world together in the arts. It's through that kind of activity that children are reflecting on who they are, how they relate to their world, how they relate to other people, and giving expressive form to that. I look at it like every innovative thought comes from a creative mind state. So if you're a scientist, if you're a mathematician, what, what have you, when you're thinking outside the box, you're using a creative part of your Absolutely. mind. Absolutely. I believe art programs should be involved in school because it helps those aspiring students who want to become an artist in the future to find their path in the world. And also, how are we expecting them to not only pay for college, but to know what they want to do by the time they get to college, because we've taken all these electives out, and then putting them into debt, and then expecting them to have jobs when they come out of college, which they often don't because there's not a lot of jobs yeah. available to to what they're studying, right? It's – I don't know how we grow from this, but also I get really annoyed that people like, you know, any sort of top 40 musician – like where's the music scene right now? Like I think about any time where there's been political struggle – and what's always come out of it? Music. music. There's no music coming out right now. That's interesting. Music. That's very I mean, when you go to you go back to the yeah, '60s, the '60s and the '70s, when we were just really rocking it. And what a yeah. timestamp of that time yeah. to be able to like put on a Crosby, Stills and Nash album and hear hear what people were feeling. Yeah, Dylan. Dylan. Joan Baez. Joan Baez. They were they they spoke mm-hmm. of the moment. Mm-hmm. Neil Young. Who's speaking of the moment now? I mean, we have yeah, sound bites. Really I mean, thank sound- God we have sound bites. You of- know, that's a really interesting question. I think that social media has kind of dissipated a lot of that energy. Well, because people are able to immediately gratify the need to say something. Yeah, and like, yeah, what bands are coming out. I mean, when I think about, like, for instance, DJ Khaled, who's Muslim, I'd love to know what he has to think from, you know, his perspective about the Muslim band, ban. Like, what is that guy, and and what a better way to express that than through his music, which reaches so many people? Like, where are those people? Are they fearful? Hmm. But what do they want? More money? Like, how much more money can these people have where they're afraid to speak out? Are they able to sell anything now? I mean, the music business is another one that's just gone. Right. Well, and so again, transitional because yeah. of streaming and. Yeah. But I, 
I don't know in 30 years from now when we look back on this time of oppression and struggle, are we going to have music to be like, oh, that's really represented what we were feeling at that time? That is such, you know, that is such a good question. Because I know when I go to the gym, Mm -hmm. and it's mostly a bunch of guys there, but it's the same music and it just drives me crazy because it has no rhythm and no beat and no... Lyrics. Lyrics. And I go, yeah. Finally, it's like, we're alone now. Can we ch- turn it? And we always put on the classics. And we've they seen. still hold up because there is nobody speaking out for this generation. And we've seen the oh power it has. Like when Taylor Swift got on stage and said... But this award and every single award given out tonight were voted on by the people. And you know what else is voted on by the people? midterm elections on November 6th. Get out and vote. I love you guys. Registration was bumped up, you know, within 24 hours. Yeah. I mean, it's really powerful, this this platform. And they have to know of what that power must be. I, Are they it, making a conscious choice to just not go there? I just wonder, because if you do, because you don't know who your fans are, you could have fans from all sides. Right. Of the spectrum. So if you start politicizing yourself, then maybe you think you might have fans who are not going to buy your music or stuff anymore. And then what happens? What's the worst that's going to happen? How much do you need? How much money do you need? I mean, these, you know what I mean? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's hard for me to, and, and maybe it's because it's a millennial thing and they're not really motivated politically anyway. Maybe it's just a general generational thing and they haven't had to struggle until now. So maybe it's the next generation that will make the music of this era. But it's crazy when you think about that there is no real timestamp that we're going to be able to look back at. That and the fact that there are people, like you say, with huge platforms that don't do anything. They're making a choice. They're making a choice not to do anything. Or maybe they don't care. Maybe. That, I mean, maybe they're not awake. I mean, I can't, I can't get mad at somebody who's asleep. Right. Who's ignorant of the situation. But on the other hand, I can't imagine anyone who is not aware of what's going on. So you're, they're choosing to block it out. So anyone I mean, that's, that's what you're saying, yes, right? anyone that's uh, socially or politically awake, I ask this question, and I ask this question if if I'm sitting with a politician as well, because I think it gives you a real perspective into who they are. What keeps you up at night? It could be personal or social or political. Is there something that an issue that keeps you up at night? Uh, Not one particular issue. I think, you know, it's taken a couple of years now to deal with this onslaught of shocking information that seems to have come from the White House almost daily. Mm -hmm. Some higher, some whatever. Now we're into this other phase of... So I became addicted to wanting to know everything that was going on which would keep me up at night. Mm. Besides all of my other um, issues that I'm working on uh, personally, right. um, like activism issues and things. Oh, by the way, mm. 
Samuel French. Do you know about Samuel yes, French closing? Yes, I do know yeah. about it closing, and it's it's heartbreaking. It, it, it is heartbreaking. Did it just move to? Did it all move to digital? Like, are mm-hmm. they? Yeah, yeah. It's what's happening in in our society. Everything is going. In, you know how hard is it when you call some company oh, and you want to talk press two, to a human press, being? Please. Yes, I just want a fucking person. That's all I want. Yeah. <laughs> like. And there are people who are who don't have jobs. It's like, well, give those people who don't that have job. jobs the jobs. Yeah. Let's get it together. Like, what the hell is going yeah. on? And all I can think of is go back to Marianne2020.com, and she has answers for these things. She really does, Alyssa. Well, yeah. And she gets it. You know, it's, it's, it, it's like there has to be a fundamental shift in the way we do business. Mm-hmm in the way we do our politics in order for us to survive because ultimately if we don't have a planet to live on all this other stuff we're talking about is moot and i also think that there is it's almost like as little human contact as possible is preferable like we it, it just you know i think amazon's a perfect example of this how Instead of, you know, we used to go on shopping sprees or get excited to go buy our food in the stores. Now, because Amazon has made things so disconnected and it just shows up at our doorstep and we don't have to deal with parking and we don't have to. So we're getting to this place where like we don't have to connect with people at all that are unlike us. You know, you don't have to talk to the cashier at the supermarket mm-hmm. and ask them how their day is. Right. That's an issue <laughs> because we're not teaching our youth those really important skills where they actually see us communicating uh, with other people. Oh, my God. That's right. right. Kids. I should listen to me. I sound like an old person. Kids today. Yeah. Kids no, today. I no, I, I say that all the but, time. But, but I feel like an old person. <laughs> yeah. Because it's such a... Making eye contact with somebody and sitting at a table and having a conversation. How many kids don't know how to do that? Because nobody sits down at the dinner table and practices conversing. Yeah. I mean, I have, I, we have that conversation all the time. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring you to this dinner. When I introduce you, please shake their hand and say nice to meet you and make eye contact. Yes. So important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I feel like if there's not that exercise of them seeing their parents do it and also the exercise of them having to do it, mm-hmm. how are they going to have that skill? Yeah. It's another thing to put on the teachers in class having, you know, teach etiquette. That wouldn't be a bad idea, actually. But Go back to that go because back there to was that. a time there, that... There was that, a time that yeah. it was part of the curriculum. Yeah. 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 Well, sportsmanship... You know, that's that's the whole thing about physical activity. You learn to play sports. You learn teamwork. Teamwork. And maybe you are, you know, fighting against another team, the us and them thing, but you're also learning camaraderie and to watch somebody else's what is back. your What is your, what, how do you feel about this this new sports world where everyone gets a trophy for just participating? I never understood that uh, at all. 
and um, I've heard ex- people express themselves about it. And I thought, yeah, you know, I guess we all should have a trophy just for waking up in the morning and say thank you. That's what the sun is for, right? No, I mean, you. there has to be some kind of standard, you know. And also, that- I mean, we put our kids in sports with the hope that they would learn how to lose gracefully. They're all getting a trophy, <laughs> And oh, nobody's you mean, losing. You mean you mean they get a trophy even if they lost? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Thought, All kids what? are getting trophies now. Yep. No, I you know yep. I I kind of like ignored that because I thought this is going to go away soon. There is you mean a the, even the losers get trophies. Yes. I thought it was and just this a is what this is what they're saying is the was the demise of the of the millennial generation is because everything was always positive. Right? They grew up with so much positive affirmation. Then they went to college and got a taste of the real life. Mm, yes. Of, oh, okay, if I don't do well on a test, it, there's consequences for that. Yeah. And if I'm not a good human being, there are consequences for that. And, if I, and so there is a, a huge percentage of that generation that would be clinically depressed because they never learned those coping skills growing up because it was a time where everyone got a trophy, where everyone in class was celebrated the same way, that there were no awards for excellence, that everyone was treated with the same, even people that weren't making the same effort would be treated the same as, as those that were, you know, making that effort. And that is what people are, are saying that the, the the apathy in the millennial generation is caused from. I didn't realize it's it because they never deep. really had to oh my God. passionately I, yeah. exert themselves in, in anything. And I think if you look at the political contribution of that generation when I I'm assuming everybody thought that they didn't have to fight against the government because Obama was in office, and even if you disagreed with what Obama was putting forth as far as, far as policy, you knew he wasn't a corrupt, criminal, crazy person. So there is also that apathy politically, and that's why the millennial generation, we can't get them out to vote. It's because they never had to fight against anything. I never, you know, I never went that deep with it. I'm sorry. When I heard about the trophy, that I thought, oh, this is not something I'm going to get into. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's I, a I very feel interesting. Kind of ignorant right now. Well, I'm not ignorant anymore. But to see how that affects an entire generation mm-hmm. of people, because you have to know. I had this therapist. Oh my God. I had this therapist who said to me, I see more college kids that came from parents that are still married, had very affluent childhood, you know, money, no struggle at all, that are so depressed because once they entered college, they realized what the real world was and that they weren't so great. And they're depressed because of it. And they have no coping. No and they have no cope. coping mechanisms at all. Wow, makes sense though, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Well, what I think, you know, the the life has its ups and downs. Someone in the arts, the career ups yeah. and downs. 
I never thought about it till this moment to think how many times I've not gotten something or been rejected or whatever. And you have to take it and you have to feel it. You have to mourn it. You have to pick yourself up Mm -hmm. and go again. It's like getting back on the horse, you know? I never realized how, how it creates resilience and, uh, and compassion for others too. Tools, tools. Like you said, you like tools. I do. I love tools. <laughs> I know you sent all those toolboxes out during yeah. the election. I, I love, love tools. It. Yeah, anything that can help us get through the day. Yeah, right. Because we all have our own shit and our own struggles, and it's all relative to our lives. But and of course, there are some that have worse struggles than than we do. But it's important, I think, to reflect, to appreciate them, because the struggles are what allows us to really appreciate the high points. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Having gratitude is really important. I allow myself to feel bad until it kind of passes, and if it doesn't pass, I go, okay. 10 minutes, whatever. Yeah. You know, time to pick ourselves to, up. You know, it's time to count your blessings. What gives you hope? What gives me hope? Other people who are happen to just, I can open a book and read a passage or I can, you know, social media, I'm not putting it down because it's been, it's really good if it's used the right way to, to have a, a, a moment of inspiration. Mm-hmm. If now this print, post something that just really moves me to see how someone has overcome that gives me hope people putting out positive things Mm -hmm. you know not just for the sake of of uh ignore not not to ignore the darkness but oh i heard this amazing poet for the first time at the Visionary Women's Award. Gina Loring is her name. G-I-N-A-L-O-R-I-N-G. She's Native American. She's a spoken word artist. I was having one of those days when the world feels thick and memories I wish I could forget are front and center, hanging heavy in the air like cement on my chest, I was having one of those days when being alive feels like a chore, when just getting up and out the door is too much. So I prayed. I got down on my knees and my grandmother's grandmother began to speak to me. She said, listen, you are a meteor shower meant for more than you could even begin to imagine. You are made of light, limitless like the wind, regal as the tallest oak that ever stood. She said, hear me, good. You are a shooting star, not for the concrete and traffic, smog and city streets. You are meant for the sky, not the broken promises of this world, the sharp tongues and shameless actions, cold-blooded, compassionless coercion on every other corner. No, you are the moon. 
For only those who survive the darkest night live to tell the story of the stars who live and live and live to be reborn into their own greatness again and again, getting wiser with every year. Be grateful for time. Growing older is a luxury. Ask Anne Frank, ask Trayvon Martin. You're alive, girl, alive. Alive on purpose for a purpose. You are here. Through every low moment you've lived through, you are here, breathing. Nothing is strong enough to put out the light you got within. That galaxy living in your chest, baby girl, I'll say it again. You are a shooting star made of magic. Never forget, God spoke you into existence, dreamt you into a body, blessed the planet with your presence. You ain't nobody's to claim. You belong to the earth. Your breath, your heart, your spirit lives in the music moving somewhere behind the sun, singing songs of solidarity with the wind, weightless, for queens carry only themselves. No baggage, no heavy hearts. Freedom is yours alone, but you got to claim your throne. Walk steady in your skin. You are the answered prayers of your kin. The ancestors rejoice at your very existence. You are the open road we could never travel. The limitless midnight of our dreams, divinely designed for a destiny you cannot even imagine. I want you to imagine. Somewhere off the coast of West Africa, seven generations ago, Seven generations ago, seven generations ago, they knew a girl child would be born many moons in the future who would be a gift unto the world. They knew you were coming. They knew you were coming. Don't you see? Don't you see? You are who we knew you'd be. We're pulling for you, but we need your help. You believe in God, but you don't believe in yourself when all along you are God. That spirit spark is within you. Get up off your knees. Get up off your knees. Get up off your knees, girl and be. Well, you give me hope. Yeah? You inspire me. Every day. It's true. Don't ever feel that you're not making a difference because you are. It's so interesting because I look at when I repost something of yours Versus when I post something myself and it's like, oh, three, five. <laughs> <laughs> you and Mark have thousands. And I, like, I'm going, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm acting like a teenager here because maybe that one person who liked what I said, maybe that was the person who needed to hear it. And it's not about... They did. Obviously, they did. <laughs> Obviously, they did. Because you inspire me. I don't know how I came in here saying, you've got kids. You've got a husband. You've got a career. You're. This is part of. How do you do part it? Of, part of. Well, I think it's a, a a bunch of different things. Once I stopped trying to find balance, because I used to get asked that question all the time, like, "How do you balance it all?" Oh. Which is such a fucking sexist question because <sighs> nobody's ever asking men like. How do you balance it all? How can you be a father and have a career and own a business? And you know what I mean? It's just such bullshit. But I felt like because I kept being asked that question, like I was supposed to find balance. And then I realized, nope, fuck it. Balance does not exist. It does not exist. And I think this is part of, it's a couple of things. One of which I look at what's right in front of me and I try to stay in that moment and try to be the best that I can be in that moment. So if that means 
my kids, I'm present with them, and I'm the best mother that I could possibly be. If that means, you know, acting, when I'm working, I'm the best I could possibly be in that moment. Hmm. Activism, same thing. Like, whatever I'm fighting for, I have to fight in that moment. And I think that that's what's worked for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I stopped looking for balance, and I started to just be present and not be stressed about the things that I had to do, but just really take responsibility for the things I was doing right then in that moment. But I also think part of my mental illness actually helps me in this respect because I have OCD and I have anxiety disorder. And I think being able to function on the level that both of those things make me function at actually helps to be heightened and aware presently. And I say this because I hope it helps people that are suffering from any sort of mental illness realize that they're they're worth because so often we look at it as a disability and not as something that that could be helpful. And how do we cha- channel that? Yeah, you channel it into I channel it being into present. being present. You know, I'm obsessive about the things that I care about. Yeah. I learn everything I can about that. Yeah. It allows me to compartmentalize in a, in a way that I think is beneficial to how I, I choose to live. But also I think there's just certain people that are worker bees. And I think I'm a worker bee. I just think I'm one of those people that I'm very grateful. And I have to take advantage of the opportunities that I'm given and hope that that sets the foundation for a legacy. You know? I'm like staring at you right now going, <laughs> I can't believe I'm actually sitting here talking to you and you're not in D.C. somewhere or, you know, showing pictures of your kids dancing and stuff. Mm. I mean, you're it's amazing what you're doing. Thank you. And I learned so much from you. Thank you. Uh, it, I'm it, not good at taking compliments, so let's just <laughs> let's just hug it out. Okay. Thank you so much for being with us. In 1936, Dorothea Lang entered a migrant labor camp armed with her camera. There, she encountered a mother and two children. They were there to pick peas, but were unable to work because the field had frozen over. Living in a tent and subsiding on frozen vegetables and any birds her children were able to kill, Florence Owens Thompson was desperate. Lang captured that description in a powerful photograph now known as Migrant Mother. In the picture, Owens looks past the camera, with a stare in her eyes that tells millions of sad stories. Her children flank her, shaggy heads turned into their mother's shoulders, hiding and seeking solace that was nowhere to be found but there. The image became iconic of the plight of the millions of displaced American workers during the Great Depression. It was widely circulated through the nation and was instrumental in inspiring federal aid programs for these workers. In this, art changed the world. There is nothing that can drive the national conversation like art. 
Whether it is in song, on canvas, on the page, or on the screen, art is a cultural touchstone that instigates conversation and provokes thought. When we gather together and talk about what happens in our world, art is often the center of that conversation. Art is so effective because it hits us emotionally before it hits us intellectually. Good art must provoke a response. It cuts through distractions, it distills experiences into their essences, and it helps us see things more clearly. And art is under assault. As we transition to a STEM nation, schools have spent a generation gutting art and music and writing programs. And yet, without art, who will provide context in a technology-driven world? Where will we be as a nation when in the next Great Depression we haven't taught the next Dorothea Lang how to use her camera? As Juan Miró told us, a simple line painted with a brush can lead to freedom and happiness. Take away those lines, and we take away our fundamental identity. Art is who we are. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry.